my great joy to be able to minister the Word of God to you once again this morning. So will you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We find ourselves now looking at verses 5 through 16 under the heading of Restoring Broken Relationships. Restoring Broken Relationships, a very practical passage of Scripture to those of us who know and love Christ and are a part of his church. Follow along as I read 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 5. For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow, has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So, although I wrote to you, It was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame, but as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. And his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. As image bearers, we were made for relationship, relationship with God, relationship with one another. We were made to love him and to love one another, and we all long for devoted relationships. We all long to be loved, to be wanted, to be accepted. But given the dynamics of this fallen world, relationships tend to not work real well sometimes. In fact, many times, most of them don't work very well. Even those we love can reject us, can betray us, malign us, even abandon us. And when this happens, the pain is unbearable, especially when it's the result of someone leaving us who we thought loved us and who we loved. This is why marital infidelity and divorce are considered to be among the most painful of all trials. We've all been hurt by people we love. Now, I'm not talking about feeling hurt because somebody didn't meet your expectation or somebody didn't agree with your personal preference and you're going to take your ball and go home. That's not what we're talking about here. Not talking about wounded pride. Not talking about self-pity. 
And by the way, you'll know you have that because your heart is filled with revenge and retaliation rather than a deep desire for restoration and reconciliation. What I'm talking about here is the heartbreak of betrayal, the heartbreak of disloyalty, of abandonment, of even abuse in a relationship. That's what Paul was dealing with. You will remember the context here. After investing almost two years of his life in Corinth, leading these people to saving faith in Christ, establishing this church, loving these people, discipling these people, watching them grow in Christ. And then after he leaves, he finds out that there's false teachers that come in to the congregation, begin to lead them astray, begin to turn people against him and against his message of the gospel, teaching them a false gospel that is now so pervasive in evangelicalism today. And so the people turned against him. One even attacked him verbally during his, quote, sorrowful visit. And the sad thing is the majority of the congregation didn't defend him. It's inconceivable. It's heart-wrenching. The pain of unrequited love is, is... is among the greatest of all sorrows. Now, you will recall in chapter 1, he described the severity of what he experienced, the external pressures he talks about, the afflictions, suffering so brutal that he said he despaired even of life and had the sentence of death within him. He needed to be delivered from so great a peril of death. That's how severe it was. It was heartbreaking for him. So, folks, it wasn't his pride that was wounded. It was his heart. And perhaps you have been there. He wasn't filled with self-pity and resentment and, and, and anger and a desire for revenge. He didn't engage in slanderous gossip. He didn't just take his ball and go home, so to speak. He had a desire for restoration, not for retaliation, not for revenge. So while in Ephesus... Paul wrote a very strongly worded letter confronting them and calling them to repentance that they might be reconciled to God and to him. So he drafted it out of love and out of a desire to preserve the truth of the gospel there in that church to protect them from being further deceived by these false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 4, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears... By the way, those letters are hard. I've written many of them. Perhaps you've had to write them. Perhaps you've read some of them, maybe even some that I've written. I'm not sure, but it's tough. Then Paul gave that letter to his beloved son in the faith, Titus, to go back to Corinth and to hand deliver it to them and then to return with their response. Obviously, Paul was deeply concerned about how they would receive Titus and his letter. And more often than not, those situations don't turn out very well. Fortunately, this one did, as we will see. So being overwhelmed with sorrow and longing to know of their reaction, Paul left Ephesus and traveled to the seaport city of Troas to somehow intercept Titus returning from Corinth. And while in Troas, we read how the do- a door of ministry was opened to Paul, but he was so distressed, so depressed, so concerned about all of this that he couldn't minister, couldn't go through the door. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, we read, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. By the way, as a footnote, the passage I just read stops and Paul has a lengthy digression concerning his ministry that he talks about. And then he returns to that narrative in verse 5 of chapter 7 where we're at here today. So because he had no rest in his spirit, in other words, because he was so depressed, We read how he leaves Troas 
and travels to Macedonia in search of Titus. That brings us to verse 5. But, he says, even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. In other words, all of the strife that he knew was going on and that he experienced caused him to fear that they might lose their trust in him and their trust in the true message of the gospel. But he also knew that many of those believers would therefore forfeit blessing in their life, and some that weren't truly born again would never come to saving faith. So that's how serious it was. So the question before us as we look at this text is simply this. How do we restore broken relationships? And there's much to be learned in this passage of Scripture. I mean, we know according to Romans 12 and verse 8, Uh, So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So you do all you can, but ultimately we see that we are so dependent upon the Lord for restoration to truly happen. In fact, it is impossible to restore broken relationships apart from divine resources. You will recall what Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, as we look at this text, I would submit to you that we must be supplied with five divine resources, five resources. We must, number one, be given a God, or we need a God-sent friend to comfort us. Secondly, we need a God-glorifying desire for reconciliation. Thirdly, we need a God-empowered boldness to confront sin. Number four, we need a God-given discernment to detect genuine repentance. And finally, we need a God-imitating love to forgive. If you're in need of restoring broken relationships today, I strongly encourage you to pray for these most important provisions for they will truly bring comfort to your soul. By the way, the term comfort is a recurring theme that we see in this passage of Scripture. It's mentioned six times in these verses. And the word joy and rejoicing five times. So this is a passage about comfort and about joy that comes as a result of restoration. And certainly there are a few things in life more discomforting than unreciprocated love in the form of betrayal. So, what must God provide in order to restore broken relationship? Well, number one, a God-sent friend to comfort you. Notice in verse 6, he says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Oh, dear friends, what a blessed provision this is. To have God send some friend into your life in the midst of of this kind of pain. How often have we said that so-and-so was a godsend, right? That's what Titus was. And God is so gracious here to do this. He is the God of all comfort who knows how desperately we need a godly friend to speak truth into our life, uh, a tangible expression of his grace and his mercy and his love. And dear friends, as persecution mounts in our country, as it absolutely will under the Biden administration. You're going to need this kind of friend. You're going to need many of them. And you're, need to, going to, and you're going to need to be this kind of friend. Christian fellowship is, is a tonic to a grieving soul. It is, a, it is a cool, refreshing drink of water to a thirsty traveler. It is a glowing fire on a cold and dark night. Do you have people in your life that can bring comfort to your soul? I hope you do. If not, you need to be cultivating them. And I might also add, are you such a friend that others can depend upon? So, God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus, verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. 
as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced even more. It's really fascinating when you think about it. Can you imagine going into hostile territory with a letter of confrontation like this? Don't you know Titus was a bit apprehensive? He probably came in and handed it to him and then took out. Didn't want to be there when it was read. Oh, but look what God did. We read how he moved upon the hearts of the majority of the saints in Corinth to respond to Titus's coming and, and his message in such a way that it animated within them humble repentance and a desire for restoration. And so God even used them to comfort Titus as we read. Folks, this is the power of humility. This is the work of grace in the life of a believer. But here we see another great provision in Paul's life. He was given, number two, a God-glorifying desire for reconciliation. I mean, apart from this, it's certainly not going to happen. We see this in his response to the good news that Titus brought him, the news he had prayed for and longed for. We read how Paul was not only comforted by the coming of Titus, as he says, but also by his report of, notice these three words in verse 7, their longing, their mourning, and zeal for him, so that I rejoiced even more. You see, Paul wanted reconciliation more than anything. That's what he prayed for. He wasn't looking for revenge because of their disloyalty. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Let the Lord handle those things. No, he had the mind of Christ. He was ruled by the Spirit, not by his flesh. And he gave the same grace that he had been given. And in celebration of God's grace, Paul reminds us of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, that God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And then as if he couldn't contain himself, he declares in verse 15, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. All who are debtors to God's grace will testify to the reality of his presence and power in their life in these times. You all know what it's like when your heart is failing and you find yourself drowning in a sea of sorrow. What's fascinating is, is God doesn't just see your desperate need and, and, and throw you a lifeline of his grace. No, 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 no. He dives in. And he rescues you with his omnipotent arm. And he brings you safely to shore. His deliverances are not at all like the rescue of a paid lifeguard saving a stranger on some public beach. No, 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 no. Rather, it's like a loving father who will gladly give his life to save his precious child. We read in Micah 7 and 13 that God delights in unchanging love. That's what brings joy to him, his unchanging love towards us. For this reason, Jesus described himself in Matthew 11 and verse 29 as being gentle and lowly and able to provide rest for our souls. We should all be eternally grateful knowing that he is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2.4. He's rich in mercy. Indeed, he is the wellspring of compassion. He is the fountainhead of, of infinite kindness towards us as we are towards our children and grandchildren. All that we ever need in times of trouble will flow naturally from him. In fact, the very core of God's being is always ready to burst forth in tender expressions of his grace. To act with tender compassion is, is the natural response of the God of glory, the God of all comfort. 
And the Apostle Paul knew this. He had experienced it before, and now he's experiencing it again, and he's rejoicing because of it. This is what motivated them, and therefore he possessed a God-given desire for reconciliation. By the way, if you don't have that, maybe you're in a broken relationship right now, if you don't have that, there is something deficient in your view of God's mercy and grace towards you. And if you don't deal with this, that kind of bitterness will consume you and drive you away into greater sorrow. I mean, nobody likes to be around an old curmudgeon, right? I like that word. It just kind of sounds like what it means, an old curmudgeon. Or who wants to be around some old cranky feminazi woman, you know, who who's as toxic as battery acid because she's still mad about what so-and-so did, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. Well, we all need a God-sent friend to comfort us, a God-glorifying desire for reconciliation. But thirdly, we need a God-empowered boldness to confront sin. Ah, here's where the cat is thrown in amongst the pigeons, right? Verse 8, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. You see, Paul understood that reconciliation could never take place apart from repentance. And genuine repentance requires sorrow over sin. In fact, repentance is literally a term that is used to describe a a radical change of heart that abandons former character traits, a regret over past attitudes and behaviors, a turning from sin to holiness. But this is never going to happen until we're first confronted with our sin or until we confront someone else with their sin. By the way, that's why the gospel message begins with a violated law. And unless a person sees who they are before a holy God, they will never repent and come to saving faith in Christ. Ah, people will say, oh, but pastor, (laughs) confrontation just makes things worse. Yeah, you know, that's what evangelical pragmatism is all about, right? Let's just be real careful that we don't offend anybody with the truth of the gospel. Let's don't make anybody feel uncomfortable and talk about their sin and the hell that awaits them lest they repent. No, 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 no. Let's be careful here. Let's make people feel comfortable where they are, that you're you're just fine. You just need to accept Jesus into your heart, whatever that means. Folks, the result is when there's no repentance, there's no reconciliation with God. It's as simple as that. When there's no repentance, there is no regeneration. Meaning, a person will never be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. And apart from regeneration, there is no salvation. How many times I've dealt with marriages that are absolute disasters? Many times it's an abusive husband, the wife is absolutely terrified, doesn't know what to do, knows that if she confronts the husband, things are going to get so much worse. And so she chooses to do nothing. And things get much worse. Even in the church, we read, for example, in Titus 3.10, that we are to reject a factious man after first and second warning knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning and he is self-condemned. So important. Dear friend, true love for God and for others and faith in his power in our life will motivate us to love other people enough to gently, to patiently, to lovingly speak the truth into their life. That they might not only be reconciled to you, but to God. In Matthew 18, verse 15, we read, If your brother sins, Jesus says, 
Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. In Galatians 6 and verse 1, we read, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Then he makes this amazing statement, bearing one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Sometimes people misapply this. This isn't necessarily talking about bearing other people's burdens of difficulties in their life. This is talking about moving into their life and helping them bear the burden of their sin that they have just been confronted with. To help get underneath that burden and help them deal with it in a way that brings true reconciliation and repentance. Well, Paul was reluctant to confront He was reluctant to confront, but he knew he must. It gave him great sorrow. But his love for Christ and his love for the truth and his love for these people moved him beyond his own fears. I mean, what father fails to discipline his child, right? I'll tell you what type of father fails to discipline his child. A father that doesn't love his child. Hebrews 12, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of repentance. So what we've seen thus far is restoring broken relationships requires a God-sent friend to comfort us, a God-glorifying desire for reconciliation, a God-empowered boldness to confront sin, and then number four, a God-given discernment to detect genuine repentance. This is so practical, so important. Listen carefully. Notice what he says in verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So here we must understand there's a huge difference between a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Verse 11, for behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now again, we know that apart from repentance, genuine repentance, there is no salvation. No matter what you believe about God, about Christ, about the gospel or whatever, there is no salvation unless there is genuine repentance to change your mind and your purpose and to be broken over how you have offended a holy God. Now, bear in mind, repentance is not reformation. It's not some resolution in your heart to do better, to kind of turn over a new leaf. That's not repentance. Nor is it contrition, just merely feeling sorry about what you've done, especially in light of the fact that you've gotten caught And now your life is a mess because of it. No, dear friends, true repentance is a a God-induced hatred for your sin. It is a God-induced turning from sin and turning unto God. It is a spirit-empowered forsaking of sin that produces holiness power in your life. The same is true here in the realm of relationships. How often have we all been guilty of being confronted about some sin in our life and we say, well, hey, I'm really sorry. I I won't ever do it again. Haven't we all said that? You know, 317,000 times, right? That's the worldly sorrow. And then some measure of reconciliation takes place. Spouses kiss and make up. People in the church kind of shake hands and hug. And after a while, the same patterns resurface. Here we go again. Or perhaps you have some 
besetting sin, some life-dominating sin, and you've repented of it a thousand times, but you're still held captive by it. And you know in your heart, you still secretly love it. Godly sorrow has never occurred. Genuine repentance has never occurred. And many times people are too, understand, too undiscerning to recognize genuine repentance. But that's what we see here in this passage. Notice in verse 9, he says, Now, I, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful. In other words, theirs was not merely some superficial, superficial regret over being caught or whatever. Or they weren't just embarrassed, nor, nor were they resentment over doing something stupid or something wrong. It's not mere disappointment or self-pity, but rather, he says, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance, to a place where you made a radical choice to move in a different direction. And notice what else in verse 9, for you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. In other words, God wants this and God is in this to produce this. And then verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. In other words, it proved, your repentance proved that you were among the redeemed, that you live within the realm of saving grace. In verse 10, he goes on, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Indeed, it produces guilt and disillusionment and slowly it kills people with with depression and alcohol and drugs and suicide and all of those things. But I want you to notice seven marks of genuine repentance. They're very obvious. The first element of genuine repentance is just, let me give you the word earnestness. Earnestness, to repent, to pursue holiness. Verse 11, for behold, he said, look at this. What earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. The earnestness speaks of just a a solemn sincerity about true repentance. It, It speaks of an eager, aggressive seriousness about making things right and restoring the fellowship that had been broken. That's what you look for. Is there an earnestness in my heart? Is there an earnestness in the heart of the person that I'm dealing with? Psalm 51, verse 1, we read the plaintive confession of David. He says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the greatness of thy compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sins, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified when thou dost speak and blameless when thou dost judge. That's true confession. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Confession in the original language, homo legeo, it's a uh, compound word. Homo means the same, legeo means to speak. It means to say the same thing about your sin that God says. That's true confession. And that's what we see here in this earnestness. The second mark is a desire for vindication. Vindication of reputation. You want to look for this in your own heart. He says in verse 11, what vindication? This is a desire to go back and to make things right. This is a desire to prove yourself trustworthy, to remove the stigma of your sin, to make a new name for yourself that glorifies God. Thirdly, you look for indignation. This is a reference to being outraged over your sin, not outraged over being caught or confronted with it. But being outraged over your sin, he says, what indignation. Beloved, this speaks of a a loathing over your sin, a resentment over your rebellion against God. Just a hatred of your sin. An anger that swells up within you because you have offended a holy God in your heart and in your behavior. You brought reproach upon yourself. You've brought reproach upon your family. 
You've hurt other people. That is the indignation that we must look for. Number four, we look for fear. This is a fear of divine chastening, a fear of judgment. He says, what fear? Certainly a fear of God here, just a profound reverential awe of the lover of their soul and a desire to honor and to worship him, knowing that if they do not, they will continue to live under a cloud of divine chastening. And I've worked with so many people over the years that have lived under that cloud and are still there. Maybe this speaks to your heart. It's the type of person who bears very little fruit in their life. The fruits of the Spirit are just really not there. They're miserable. Their marriage is not good. Their kids are not good. It's just everything. It's just kind of sour. They have no intimate, intimate communion with the Lord. They have no desire to spend time with him in prayer. They have no appetite for the word. They have no burden for the lost. They have no desire to minister to other people. They just kind of live for themselves, waiting for the next television program, waiting for the next game that they can watch. No, no, not for a person in genuine repentance. They fear that and they deal with it that they might be restored unto God. In fact, verse the, the, number five is, is the word longing. You're also going to see that. He says, what longing? This is what he sees in them. This is a longing for restoration. We see this in verse seven as well. This is just a, a passionate yearning to enjoy sweet fellowship when you know that you do not deserve it. Yes, I have offended you. I have offended God. And I long to be restored to you. And I know I don't deserve it. That's what real repentance is. Number six, zeal. This is a zeal for holiness. What zeal, he says. This is the commitment to deny yourself in order to to please God at all costs. I like what John MacArthur said, quote, zeal is a combination of two equally strong emotions, love and hate. It produces a strong love that hates anything that would harm its object. That's what you look for in real repentance, in your own heart and in the heart of one that you might be confronting in love. And then number seven, you look for avenging of wrong. What avenging of wrong, he says. This is a commitment to make things right. This is a a commitment to be reconciled with those you have sinned against. Dear friends, this is the stuff of genuine repentance. And I would humbly ask you, does this describe your life? You know, there's really two reasons why people refuse to repent. Number one, they love their sin. And number two, they don't see it. And by God's grace, we are to be instruments of righteousness through his word, by the power of his spirit, to bring those things to light. This was Paul's motivation. And by the way, God wants us to be instruments of righteousness in such a way that that we are gentle in our confrontation, that we are patient, that we are kind, but we're also forthright. By the way, if that's not there, then you're operating in the flesh and not the spirit. This was Paul's motivation, verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender. In other words, I I didn't write that letter just to confront this guy that that had verbally assaulted me. Nor for the sake of the one offended. In other words, I, I didn't write the letter in order to get my pound of flesh. That's not my motivation but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. In other words, that that, that God might see the passion of your heart, the motivation of your heart to repent and to be reconciled, not only to me, but to him. That's what motivated my letter. And notice what he says in verse 13, for this reason we have been comforted. There's that word again. We've been comforted. And besides our comfort, we rejoiced even much more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. 
Oh, dear friends, the joy of restored fellowship. You know, we're all part of the body of Christ, right? We're all members of that. We're all here to serve one another, to ultimately exalt Christ. Just like the human body. But my goodness, if the kidney and the liver and the bowels are fighting amongst each other, the body's not going to function very well. We're going to be in a world of hurt. In fact, as I talk about that, that sounds like what happens to me many times after too much Mexican food, but you get the idea. But oh, dear friends, when they all work together, what a blessed thing it is. So we need a God-sent friend to comfort us, a God-glorifying desire for reconciliation, a God-empowered boldness to confront sin, and a God-given discernment to detect genuine repentance. And finally, we need a God-imitating love to forgive. And we see this all through what Paul is saying here. By the way, this is, this is how it's supposed to work. Once again, I think of Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins, once again, not, not, not if he hurts your feelings, not if he doesn't agree with your preferences, not if he somehow fails to meet your expectations, but if your brother sins, because again, bear in mind, Matthew 18, the whole context here is confronting someone over sin that is so life-dominating and so egregious that it justifies excommunication, all right? But if your brother sins, go. It doesn't say, pray that he will come to you. No, you go. You take the initiative and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Oh, what a blessed thing, right? To experience the joy of restored brotherhood. Restored sisterhood. Oh, dear Christian, let's not fight amongst ourselves. And if problems do arise because of sin, let's deal with them. By the way, what Jesus said there is the counterpart to the shepherd's finding of the lost, the one lost sheep that had been led astray that he had described just two verses earlier in verse 13. If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. Boy, I've been party to this so many times to see wonderful restoration take place. By the way, the majority of the Corinthians eventually confronted the the man that attacked Paul. We read about that in chapter 2 and verse 6. Paul says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So here we see just this need for God-imitating love to forgive. Beloved, we are most like God when we forgive. We see this as well in his response to their repentance. Notice verse 14. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. In other words, real, authentic, true believers are going to repent when confronted with their sin. Because they love Christ, they're empowered by the Spirit of God. And they want to obey the commands of scriptures. Hypocrites will not. I've learned over the years that when I confront people who are in obvious sin, I mean, it's not like it's questionable. I mean, you could play the video. Well, there it is. Everybody knows it. This is what's going on. And they're not broken over that sin? They have no desire to deal with it? Chances are they don't know Christ. And Paul's confidence in the genuineness of their faith was validated by their humble repentance and their loving reception of Titus. He says in verse 15, And his affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all. 
how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Now, in closing this morning, I want to give you four very important principles very quickly that I trust you will take to heart when you endure the pain of some broken relationship. Maybe you're there right now. Let me give them to you quickly. First of all, I want you to understand that God uses relational pain to humble us and drive us to his throne of grace. Never forget that. God wants us to experience the power of his grace, and many times in order to do that, he will allow these things to come into our life. Moving ahead to 2 Corinthians 12, you will recall how Paul says, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. A reference to one of the key false teachers that was giving him such a hard time. So what did Paul do? According to verse 8, he implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. He goes to the Lord. Lord, please, get rid of this guy. Do something. But what's fascinating is how God used a thorn to drive him to his throne. A lesson we would all do well to learn. Beloved, no matter how difficult the trial, know this, that an infinite heaven of grace awaits all of us who will run to him for it. God grants grace to give us wisdom, give us endurance, discernment, power, joy, all of those things. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul said, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as I read earlier. But secondly, I want you to know that God is more concerned about us persevering in the power of his all-sufficient grace than being rescued from our troubles. You know, typically we prefer relief more than blessing, don't we? Paul did at first. I don't blame him. But each time Paul came before the Lord to ask that thorn to be removed, the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Folks, think about what would have happened if that thorn had been removed from Paul. He would have eliminated the need for a greater measure of grace He would have been deprived of the increased power and presence of the living Christ to endure it. Had his prayer been answered according to his wishes, he would have forfeited far more than he had gained. And we must remember that even in the midst of our own difficulties. And number three, God's power is perfected in our weakness, not in our strength. We see this clearly in the Lord's repeated response. Three times Paul implored to have the thorn removed. And three times we see, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Folks, God's all-sufficient grace is the conduit of his inexhaustible power in our life. That's where we find strength in the midst of weakness even as the Spirit empowered Christ to endure the sufferings of all whom the Father had given him, according to John 6, 36 through 40. So, too, is the Spirit's all-sufficient power, that same power that helped Christ, the power that united us to him, That is the same power that can help us endure even the greatest afflictions. Rather than removing the thorn, as Paul requested, he just said, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Well, I trust this is your response. You remember Paul's final response? He said, most gladly, therefore, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses. Why? Why? so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
That's what's important. The power of Christ. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I trust this will be your response. And I trust you will remember these five provisions that are so necessary to heal a broken relationship and restore it. You need a God-sent friend to comfort you. Pray for a God-glorifying desire for reconciliation. Pray for a God-empowered boldness to confront sin. Pray for that God-given discernment to be able to detect genuine repentance. And then pray for a God-imitating love to forgive. And then with the psalmist we can say, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the practical truths that speak so directly to each of our lives. I pray that we might understand them and that we might put them into practice when necessary. That the world will see our love for one another in our desire to walk before you in faith and in humble obedience. And Lord, if there be one here today that knows nothing of what it means to be in relationship with the living Christ, they've never been born again, they might have some religious ideas, maybe even have some religious affiliation that they brought, belong to, but may, maybe they've even made some profession of faith, but Lord, they really don't know you. And they know it in their heart. Oh God, I would just cry out to you that by the power of your spirit, you will help them to see the horror of their sin and help them to see the power of the gospel that if they will but repent and cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ to save them, the one who bore their sin in his body, that they might not have to in an eternal, an eternal hell. Lord, I pray that you will help them to see these things and to ask you to save them this day, that today they might experience the miracle of the new birth. We thank you. We give you praise in all things for Jesus' sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.